Carson Price for Wednesday, December 6, 2023. Coming to you from the Go-Goat Sports Studio, built by our Burley here at the Iconic Wall Center. If you're heading to a game downtown, make a staycation out of it. Call the hotel, 604-331-1000. Matt Sikers, alongside Blake Price, Grace Ass, hitting switches, conducting things. This show, presentation of Applewood Auto Group. Applewood Kia in Langley, in particular, the 2024 Nero EV available with financing from 6.49%. An electric vehicle? Yeah. In today's economy, makes sense more than ever. Go check out the Nero at Applewood Kia in Langley. It's all good at Applewood. Poll question today. Should the Canucks have traded Andre Kuzmenko at last year's deadline? Yes or no? You can vote at Sikarison Price on Twitter and YouTube. And I got to say, I voted yes. I mean, I was for it at the time. I thought in a year where teams were so cap-strapped, being able to add a player at less than a million dollars would have returned a ransom, given the way Kuzmenko was playing. And uh, they chose to re-sign him. Fair enough. He had great success with Pedersen. He was terrific on the power play. But it has been a struggle for the second-year Russian winger who finds himself right back in the doghouse after last night's performance, Tuesday's performance against the New Jersey Devils, where he gets benched in the third period again. And head coach Rick Tockett done talking about him. Take a listen. I'm tired of answering questions about him. We came back. You know, it worked out. You know, Kuzi's got a, you know, he's got a fortune. He's got he's got a forecheck. Let's let's start with that. Let's start with that. A lot of times he just holds up and doesn't get in on the end boards on the forecheck. And I, I'm sitting there watching, going, "Why are you stopping? Why you know what the coach is asking of you? Why are you stopping?" Um, that being said, I I think in hindsight, my answer to the poll question um, is still no with the hopes that they can figure this out because if he was four years older, by all means, like if he was a really late addition from the KHL, came over, scored 39 goals as a 29-year-old, by all means, you trade that player. But this player had enough youth behind it that this was a found wallet. For a team that had traded away so many draft picks, so many young players, didn't have much to show for it, You've got a young player dumped in your lap that scores 39 goals in his first season in the NHL. That's That was mana. And this team, especially knowing what they wanted to do because they weren't in a rebuild. We know they weren't rebuilding. Trading for a first-round pick would only be for a rebuilding team. Well, how about for a defenseman? Well, I mean, only you know if that if the de- only they know if the deal was potentially out there for, for that to happen. Well, how about using him a winger for a defenseman? Second, how about the him in the second round pick for Ronick, as opposed to the first? But again, they're about being better in the now. That's a twenty-five-year-old player. Yeah, that just fell but, into but your lap. Here's laps. my problem with all that, Blake. You hired Talkit when you hired him, mm-hmm. in part for him to get a book on the existing players and figure out who was going to be a part of the program going forward. Yeah. Which is, you know, he, he might've been duped. He might've had Sergey Gonchar or somebody 
in his ear saying, no, we can we can remake this team? Maybe it was a PR thing. Oh, we can't trade him. I mean, the fans love him, and he's been the best thing to happen to us this year. I so, do wonder if that came into play. Who knows? Maybe they just thought we've stumbled upon something. Maybe this is the Rocket Richard guy next year, and we're going to get him at a lark of a deal. And in the end, you know, again, the Canucks can thank their lucky stars. This isn't a full-on bust player. Like a 39-goal score generally in the league is going to get paid $8, 9000000 million a year, and this is a five-something player. There was also the narrative of, well, you don't want to piss Elias off because they've found chemistry here, and you're going to trade a winger who's shown to produce with him when you want to extend absolutely long term and yeah. he wants to and be better he... and, and Elias Pettersson wants this team to be better oh we found a 39 goal mm-hmm. scorer we're gonna trade him and what does type of message does it send to Dan Milstein if you're Patrick Alvin so say look, we just went out of enough our way of this I've had I've well, had enough hey, of I'm this I'm just explaining no, 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 the narrative no, I understand so I understand but it's, it's getting me angry <laughs> Dan Milstein does not run this fucking hockey team no, no one's suggesting Dan this. Milstein's sensibilities should not be any criteria for how to manage this hockey club. But there's no evidence that that's the case. There's not. It's fan It's fan driven. So, Grady, you're on team no on this one as well? Uh, yeah, I'm on team no. Okay, you're both wrong. But you don't so, know that. So a player starts to slump, a sophomore slump, and you want to sell low on I the player? Said, no. No, he's saying last year's deadline. Last year's deadline. Was that a mistake? Is the question. That's the question. Hindsight's twenty twenty. No, because some of us were saying trade him last year at the deadline. Hey, you could have sold high, sure, but you also have to think about the ramifications. What it does for your star franchise center going forward here. Understand. We also don't know exactly what any deals could have been. I mean, it's a winger. We we've seen wingers do not fetch much. It was a low cost winger. Tracking towards thirty to forty goals. Well, I said I remember uh, tweeting. That's he had the, worth a lot. He had the highest trade value. I thought just because of the cap hit that mm-hmm. you know all contenders could fit him under the cap. Right. Whereas someone like Horvat, you had to factor in the contract right. at the time, and and most contenders were good down right. the middle already. And and refresh me, he was RFA too, right? Was he UFA or RFA? He was U, I think, wasn't he? Anyways. Yeah, he was going to be UFA. Anyways, we'll get back to the Canucks here in a second because it is not often that a sporting event in Vancouver on the same night as a Canucks home game, especially when they're going well, if they're still going well, overshadows said Canucks game. But that was the case Tuesday as Christine Sinclair bid farewell to the Canadian national team in front of 48,000-plus at BC Place Stadium, or Christine Sinclair Place, as they were calling it. A fabulous send-off for one of the great athletes this country has ever produced, and far and away our best soccer player ever. Biggest event in seven years at BC Place. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Good on him. Well done on this community. Stepping out and getting behind Christine, her teammates, and this program. Because let's face it, there haven't been a lot of great headlines with Canadian soccer over the last year. But this was an unforgettable moment for anybody who was there. We said that she should start in that final game. She did start Mm -hmm. in the final game. She goes 57 minutes, 
past the 57 minute mark. Very nice touch introducing her before the crowd and having her two nieces accompany her onto the field. Very nice touch with the pregame video, and she did get a, a little emotional watching that video. She belted out the anthem loud and proud, and you could tell she was getting a little emotional towards the end of O Canada, the final O Canada for her in a Canadian jersey. And then the game starts, and she's pretty good. Like, she's creating chances for them. It was kind of a snippet into the player that Christine Sinclair has become because she's earlier the, in career, the she's the striker yeah. finisher of all those crosses. And Tuesday it was her generating some of those chances for teammates. Would have loved to have seen her get a goal. I think the entire stadium, maybe even the Australians, would have liked to have seen her Hasn't scored in a, a year and a half. Yeah. And you could see the tremendous respect from the Australians. Oh, yeah. So well done to the Australian national team for understanding this moment. And there were countless Australian players who were having a chuckle with her pregame, postgame, even on the field. Hugged her coming off. Eh? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well done. I was a little surprised at the substitution from Bev Priestman in part because Luke Wildman said at the start of the TSN broadcast they expected her to play an hour or so. It was short of that. And because it was the first substitution, I would have thought, okay, make a substitution, let the crowd know that subs are coming on now, and then replace Christine. But another nice touch from Priestman in making it Sophie Schmidt, also playing her final game, Abbotsford's Sophie Schmidt, coming on to... uh, replace her great friend and 20-year teammate. Yeah. Yeah. That in itself is quite a sentence. Two of them were a big part of the rise Mm -hmm. of uh, this team and women's soccer as a whole in this nation. So it's uh, it was a pretty special night and and good on Vancouver for for making it an event. Yes. Like it even if it was 28,000, which is still a really nice crowd. Really good crowd. Like it wouldn't have been the same as basically filling BC Place and saying, We're all coming. And she said she'll remember it as a joyful night. She said this past week in Langford and the big win against Australia, the sort of appetizer, and then the main course Tuesday was perfect. And I think there were a lot of people in the crowd last night, Blake, who bought tickets and made time. Not because they wanted to see the soccer match, but because they wanted to support her. Yeah. They wanted to see her one last time. They wanted to get behind somebody who has few peers in the history of this country, in the pantheon of athletes we've produced, in terms of being an elite-level player, but also a builder. So to be FIFA's all-time goal scorer, I mean, that's just a staggering accomplishment when yeah. you think of it. Like this is a soccer playing globe. Yeah. Every country has a great player or two. Or dozens in the case of Brazil and some other soccer playing nations. So for her to get to that level and yeah, women's soccer was not particularly a followed sport. In this country. In fact, soccer, period. We are one of the latest to the game with soccer, really. 
And particularly if you go outside of Vancouver and don't have that Whitecaps experience of the 70s in terms of just how small the sport was commercially yeah, in Canada. Now, the women's game, the, the biggest reason why the, the ground was fertile for Christine was everybody was still so damn misogynist all the way up until she was in her late teens. Really? Like, I mean, everyone in terms of like, law society really? and, and governments and... Even into the 2015 World Cup here. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, no programs financed the sport much. Not that Canada stepped up greatly, but on the relative scale for the women's game, we were near the top. And so... And Greg Kerfoot had a big hand in that. So there was, there was this sense of, okay, we can maybe take advantage of a weak spot in a global game and get our program on track. And now we have, and now the biggest question remaining is, can Canada, who have now been passed by a bunch of countries, because like Canada was ahead of the game of big soccer-playing nations, mm -hmm. and now those soccer-playing nations, in terms of their interest and development of the women's game, it's past Canada. Absolutely. And Can we still hold on? And there was talk of that on the broadcast last night, that it's uh, no longer just two teams in Europe no. who are competitive at the highest levels, that Spain's coming on, England's coming on. Well, all the, the big have a leagues. professional league there with clubs amongst uh, women's teams uh, embedded amongst the biggest clubs going. And the biggest league. So all those big clubs in Syria, in La Liga, in the Premiership, they've all got now matching and in France too, France is big on matching women's teams, and they're drawing massive crowds yeah. too. And that will be Christine's project here going forward. She's talked about it one more year with the Portland Thorns, then all her efforts and energies into developing a Canadian women's league. Uh, I liked what was said on the broadcast by Wildman yesterday, saying she has been, you know, the builder that the men's and the the, the women's and men's program have been built off her back, which is very fair, and how many can say that? Mm -hmm. You had a great line years ago saying we're the one country in the world where the women's program is bigger than the men's. As for the club itself, I mean, a need for a striker was pretty apparent last night. There were a lot of chances in the box, and, and only one finish, but they get a victory. They've had some uh, – Leon and, and Prince have been Leon's good. a good player. They've Every time uh, she comes on, she seems to uh, be right in the middle of things. And, of course, Kadisha Buchanan's a hell of a player too. I hope the women's game, by the way, back to the league for a second, um, takes a look at what hockey is doing here. So after all the humming and hawing about women's hockey and how it could form a professional league, and as disappointing as it is for us out here who would love to see an iteration and someday maybe – what did the women's league, with financial backing finally in their corner and the best players all consolidated, mm -hmm. what did they say? We got to keep everybody close. Right. We got we have to reduce travel. We're doing it here, 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 and here because that's what gives us the best chance yeah. to succeed. For the women's soccer league to suppose that they can go coast to coast with a league and survive financially. Boy, that's They're going to have to do it smart. They're going to have to find... Uh, like we all want that. Creative ways. But we don't want it to last three years and yeah. then go bankrupt. So, like, it, it has to be done... Like, for example, one of the things you need is you need Air Canada or WestJet as a sponsor. Yeah. You need one of the airlines who are able to 
effectively underwrite the cost of travel if you're going. And you have to get really. Need a hotel sponsor. You have to get really kind of gross with that. You got to call it the Air Canada Women's Soccer League. You know, something, you know, something like that. You know, like give mm. give the sponsor reason to say, yeah, yeah. I guess we can we can go yeah, with that for sure. You know, like and, and you're going to have to be uh, overt mm-hmm. in order to get the money. You know, there have been um, a handful, I think, of team sport athletes in the history of this country who are comparable to Christine, like Gretzky. Steve Nash. It is a very, very short list. And even even Nash, who like, you are synonymous with their sport. Yeah, yeah. Even even Nash, and like, who he doesn't have any historical records. Sport. Like he had a handful of amazing seasons in the NBA, but he was an heir apparent for a long time. I believe when he won, he was the shortest MVP in NBA history. I stand to be corrected on that. In, in height, you mean height? Yes. yes. Yeah, but I mean, he, his his time at the top of the league was was brief. Like it was just a handful of years. Yeah, well, I mean, it was close to a half decade. But yeah, but like as as a top player, he had a much longer career. But in terms, no, I mean, in terms he was of, an all star player for a number of years, and for two years in a row there, he was deemed the best yes, player in the league. But as opposed to a decade of being oh okay at the top of the game, sure at the top sure. of the game. You know, sure. so it's well. I make the Nash comparison because building, right? totally, like, totally. That part's Steve the same. very yeah. much pushed basketball forward in this country. Christine yeah. very much pushed soccer, but forward. she might have the most complete package of them all, and she did it in an internet era mm-hmm. where her gains could be mm-hmm. more readily spread, right? And, so. and frankly, and they they threw back to the the video of it. Uh, amazing that she arrives. At that World Cup, what was it, under seven, under uh, twenty, whatever the World you Cup, seventeen, was, I want to say, in, in Edmonton, Edmonton all yeah. those years ago, which put big crowds in Commonwealth Stadium, and yeah. it was a little bit surprising that a for teenage Caroline, yeah, all like guys, a, yeah. an age capped women's yeah. soccer tournament did the sorts of crowds in Edmonton that it did way back when, and yet as we look back now, twenty years later. That was the Christine era, Christine Sinclair era. That was the beginnings. But I don't remember why we cared so much there. Like, why did all of a sudden a U-17 or whatever the term it was, why did it – like, I remember us saying, oh, we got to watch that game. Like, why? Why was that a thing? Why did we all of a sudden get hooked in by that team? I, I don't know. I'd well, have to go back and see. Like, what was the momentum that led the nation – to put in a great shift, not only in person, but I believe it did a pretty big number on television too. Yes. So I don't number know. one, Edmonton is a great spectator sports town. Like they they came up and you know they rise up and support. I guess the fact that we were hosting a big FIFA event caught some headlines because we weren't necessarily renowned for hosting hosting FIFA events of any of any sort at that point. So I guess that's what sort of put it on the map. But still, it's. It was teenagers. It wasn't close no. to best on best. It was, uh, and you had to capture our imagination. Back on the Canucks. 6-5 losers. Valiant comeback. Four goals allowed in the first period. And uh, a pissed off head coach at the end of it. Here's Tockett. Well, the first period, obviously, you give them those four goals that shouldn't go. Just... You know, there's system plays that, um, you know, a little disappointed. Guys, just you're supposed to be in spots they weren't in. Now you're chasing the game. 
and then we come, you know, make a great effort. And then last goal, they had actually four guys on the ice. And I think maybe you could blame all five guys on the ice for that. It, you know, it's the pressure of, I still don't understand where guys were going on that play. We had pl- time, time and, and that's, that's why you gotta, you know, that's details, details and details. That's what we keep hammering these guys. I, it, it shocked me that the score was four, what four two after uh, a period of play because they actually to me didn't seem like they were playing that poorly at all. It's just that the Devils were given such glorious opportunities when they were given opportunities, and they've got skilled players that they scored on all of them. Wasn't mm-hmm. Demko's best period? Um, but you know they had. Four or five high danger chances, and they scored on four of them. You know, it was it was just an unbelievable conversion rate. So somebody saying the Canucks are getting PDO'd. I think it was Jay Fresh saying the Canucks are getting PDO'd here. Devils are just scoring on every chance that they were given. Canucks had decent chances of their own, and they only got the two, which seemed like a deficit, even though a two goal period is nothing wrong with it. Um, to me, the bigger problems in the game ultimately come later where the Canucks do all the hard work to get back into it and continue to make the defensive foibles that they do. And the the late goal at the end of the second period was the start of it. Killer. You know, they were just defensively so crumbly and stupid. And, and, and And I say that word in its truest sense. Like they just, they made stupid decisions. And why did that all just manifest itself in one single solitary game? Um, and what's well, your well? And, I'll, I'll and what's the what's the confidence level that they're going to be able to all of a sudden assemble for a game against a wild team who clobbered the Flames last night and are looking pretty darn good themselves? Like these are two five hundred teams coming into town, the Devils and the Wild. Mm-hmm. They could potentially be a lot better than their record indicates. Oh, for sure. Got to be for a sure, lot. Of, you got to be very careful about Thursday's game. They're regressing to the mean too. Yes, just in the up in other the, direction. In the other direction. Yeah. It was the Luke Hughes goal in the second period, and of course, both Hughes jersey scored. Mm-hmm. To answer your question, and we've seen this a lot because the New Jersey Devils have owned the Vancouver Canucks now six and one Jack versus Quinn, but the losing to this club goes back. Even before that, the New Jersey Devils play with a fantastic pace. They can really skate. They play fast. The Vancouver Canucks are not quite equipped yet to play fast. Getting there, but they're still not for me amongst the fleeter teams. They also might have got teased into joining the party of an open game. That's it, Blake. Yeah. You've got enough guys on this team who have been conditioned in the past to, okay, let's play Firewagon tonight. And who slept. And I think that's why Taka was pissed. I think that this was an opportunity to show the new head coach, no, 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 we're not going to fall in that trap again. Well, they did. And that might explain why the Devils have the record they do because Vanacek is a terrible goaltender. Yes. (laughs) And, And... Like, my goodness, the Canucks could have, on their their early season Canucks, they would have scored nine against Vanacek. You know, when everything was going in for them and they were f- firing through pinholes, they would have scored nine last night. 
Now, I know uh, Grady liked G.T. Miller's game last night, the physicality and the oh, fact he's very that determined the, in the second half. The start, mm-hmm. his line was getting outworked. It was a goal and two assists, though, and physicality he, from when, J.T. But when he turned it on, he was leading them into the fight. Hoaglander, that's what they needed. Hoaglander gets the battlefield promotion and scores the tying goal. I know there's a lot of love for Nils playing on that line. He worked his ass as off, As opposed too. to Kuzmenko after the benching. Lafferty again scores. And and I, I like Joshua last night from the point of view that he draws a penalty that leads to a goal and then he cleans up a goal mm-hmm. from that third line. Took a bad penalty as well. But, mm-hmm. but overall, I think we saw that Tockett was able to forgive that one a lot quicker because he got the third third period battlefield promotion as well. So I think I think you know he saw the effort. The guys that worked hard last night got rewarded, uh, both in terms of points, but also in terms of of ice time as well. So um, I mean I think it, it's a condemnation and a compliment to Nils Hoaglander that he's in the place that he is right now this season given that other guys got a lot more looks and a lot more of of a leash than Nils Hoaglander did. What did we think of Philip Ronick last night? Well, it was amongst his worst nights. Amongst his worst nights. Didn't like the pinch on the first goal, and then let Brat get behind him on the game winner. Now, if Ian Cole doesn't blindly throw the backhand up the boards... We probably aren't having this conversation, but Hironik then caught too high and when he should have stayed down low and there was no winger. I think it was yeah, it was Joshua that didn't switch back and then Bratz left all alone in front and you can't do that in a tie five five tie with under a minute left. On on the whole though, he still won the shot share. Um one expected goals on a night where a lot of his teammates didn't win shot share and expected goals. So I I, I think he's still you know, that, that's one of those guys that can outgood his mistakes most nights. He didn't, ultimately, in terms of the counting stats. Outscored 3-2 to two and he's on the ice. Um, but still pretty, you know, he's a guy I'm not worried about. Was it a bad night? Yep. But I'm not worried about it because there's enough good that he's capable of doing. Um, I mean, look at Noah Juleson for as little as he's out there. My goodness. Um Three shot attempts with Noah Juleson on the ice. Like, um, they have to get National Hockey League defensemen in here. They just, they just flat out do. Well, they just added one. Yeah, still got, still got one more spot to fill. Uh, Carson Susi, Ethan Bear, come on down. And I know it's early, and there's a grace period for that Zadorov and Myers pairing. But man, Tyler Myers, what were you doing on that pass to Jack Hughes? Zadarov, what were you doing going down low and trying to assist him? JT Miller, same thing. They had three guys in the corner. And Zadorov no one... was way too ambitious. His yeah. four his forays in the offensive zone too, getting deep way too often. Now he had that one nice zone entry that led to the Joshua goal, but a couple the of times it was very like he just he, he greenlit himself a lot last night and it didn't always end up at the back of their own net. But my goodness, I was, you know, just wondering, oh, my God. I, like, I'm just imagining Rick Tockett watching him green light himself all the time. He's got to pick his spots. And I didn't think he was uh, 
terribly judicious last night. And I think versus Calgary, I think you played a conservative game because it was against Calgary, first game, not going to do anything silly. Boy, did he sort of let his hair down, I thought, uh, yesterday. And Nice you, hit on Lazar. But. Oh, this physicality is great. Yeah. No, Love that part. But you just can't chase and get out of position trying to make those big hits. Besser with his 18th. He leads the league by two over a quartet of players. Great goal from tip to tail. Matthews, Panarin, Kucherov, and West Vancouver, Sam, Rein- Ram- Sam Reinhardt. Um, Jack Hughes is pretty expectant, huh? Thinks he's earned the referee's whistles these days. Just absolutely stops playing and is reaming out an official. I didn't get a good replay on that one. I didn't get a good replay on it either. I thought it did look like a penalty to me at first blush. In live action, it looked like something must have happened. Yeah. Um, but to just stand and scream in the corner <laughs> as the puck's going the other way. He is t- the top points per game player in the National Hockey League right now mm-hmm. is Jack Hughes. Mm-hmm. Like if he's played the whole season, if he doesn't miss that week, my goodness, he's right there with Kucherov. And how about this from NHL PR? Did you see this? That had the Canucks won, it would go down as the first time in NHL history to have three teams win after trailing by three-plus goals in the third period. In the same night. In the same night. Mm -hmm. Same day. Hmm. So it was right there. And this is part of the reason why it is the golden generation. We'll get more into that with Frank Sarelli coming up. But you can come back from three goals down now. Like, that's mm-hmm. what this league is. Matt, there's no chance that's happening in 2000, you know, through 2007. Like, I it's remember, just not happening. I remember Dave Naylor calling me 20 years ago when he had finished a big study on de- dead puck era. And basically the results were if you scored first, you won 80% of the time or something like that. Yeah. And two goal leads were good. You know, two goal leads stood up like a stupid percentage of the time. There was just... Like we marveled, and part of their amazingness was the Sedins could regularly bring the Canucks back from two goals. And that was considered unfathomable, even as late as that. Yep. And now three goals go with regularity. Era, you'd go into Stanley Cup playoff games, and like it was all about that first goal. Yeah, well, because it was a two-one like, final. For well, sure. especially like yeah. if, if if you were playing Marty Berdur, you were playing Dominic Hasek, or you were playing Jaguar when he was really going. You didn't get that first goal. You were done. No, it was soccer. It was. It yeah, was, it was. Goals change games. Yeah, that was pretty much it. And mm-hmm. now, now you know you're going to need a few to to win a night. So here's the upshot. After a 10-2-1 start for the Vancouver Canucks, they're 6-7 and seven in their last 13, 26 games in. And they've fallen to third place in the Pacific Division behind the Los Angeles Kings, who win last night. In fact, they were one of those three-goal comebacks. Yeah, I couldn't believe that. I watched that game. Same number of points, but the Kings with four games in hand. And as you say... We went into this five-game stretch looking and going, okay, here are some uh, bigger boy teams and chances for the Canucks to prove themselves and put to bed that narrative of you fattened up on weak sisters and you can't beat the best of the best. Well, one game down. Minnesota is not technically best of the best because of their record, but as we know, they're the are they the hottest team in the league right now or one of the hottest teams in the league? They've won four in a row. 
Right. Well, under the new coach, they've mm-hmm. they've caught Tied for the hottest team right now yeah. in the league. Uh, then Carolina and the Florida teams. So I said three and two. Hey, be happy with three and two if it happens. Teams now, that have blown starts the likes of which the Canucks got out to. 12-3-1 at one point. Either derailed by injuries to star players or five-game losing streaks. Everything to avoid those long losing streaks and thus put a little more importance on the game Thursday against Minnesota. Remember, at the end of this homestand, they're out on the road. They start with back-to-back games out on the road in Minneapolis and Chicago. Short travel, but still. But still, back-to-back games out on the road. Um, Got to face Dallas on that road trip as well. Mm-hmm. well. We'll see where Nashville's at. But, it, you know, it, this is home cooking. Even though they're tough opponents, this is home cooking. Got to go 3-2. and two. Switching gears. Our new friend Dave Hall from Canucks Army told us last week, expect LaCaramacki, Wheelander, and EPD. Don't forget about Elias Pettersson, the defenseman, to make Sweden's World Junior Team. And sure enough, they're there. Boom. And I might watch as much Swedish hockey at the World Juniors as I do Canadian hockey. I mean, I'm... And typically what that means is you see a lot of round-robin wins. Yes. And you see a lot of medal losses. Yes, yeah. One, maybe two medal games out of the Swedes. (laughs) Anders, I know you're listening. Let's get to today's menu. It is brought to you by Greta on on West Cordova. Fantastic spot to catch the game throughout the season. Playoffs, place to chill in the offseason. Frank Cervelli going to stop by. Typically on Friday, we flip the Franks this week. Corrado on Friday, Cervelli Wednesday. Uh, we talk about the Board of Governors meetings, whether you'll get a chance to see best on best at the 2026 Winter Olympics, about the salary cap and the machinations there. It's all politics. It's all leverage with Gary. We talk about the tire fire that is the Columbus Blue Jackets and what's going to happen there. Chris Tanev, Leaf still in on him. Phil Broberg in Edmonton, now available, as Frank reported earlier in the week. And uh, goalies, who's seeking goalies? What goalies are available? We'll get to some hashtags, the best and worst of Twitter, including big change in the world of golf. And a change that at one point was only going to affect the pros. Now it's going to affect the rank amateurs. David Quadrelli stops by, editor-in-chief, Canucks Army, host of Canucks Conversation. They do the show right here from this studio. They've done so for the last month. They've already broken a chair. Quite the producer they have, too. Mm. Mm. The show feels a little loose, but okay. Mm. Not tight. Mm. Uh, What do we talk about with quads? Well, uh, the game last night, the Hughes Bowl going forward, Philip Ronick. Andre Kuzmenko and others. And uh, some baseball talk mixed in here as we have finally been clued on what's going on with the Seattle Mariners this offseason. Secure some price from Wall Center. Presentation Applewood Auto Group. Applewood Nissan in Surrey has some fabulous deals. 2023 is coming to an end, so get some great deals with great rates on a fabulous little vehicle. The Nissan Qashqai, built for BC. Finance rates from 4.49%. 
or the Pathfinder in the 2024 variety with rates from 4.99%. Check it out at Applewood Nissan. It's all good at Applewood. Love the Pathfinder. You had a Pathfinder, didn't you? I wish I in had a Pathfinder. Days? In your younger days? No, you never I, I had a uh, similar SUV from a different manufacturer. Oh, I thought you had But I wanted the Pathfinder. Mm. It was cooler. Booming in your Jeep. Uh, should the Canucks have traded Andre Kuzmenko at last year's deadline? That is today's poll question. You can vote yes or no at Sakarison Price on Twitter and YouTube. Joined now by NHL insider Frank Saravelli of the Frankly Speaking podcast and the Daily Faceoff. You were in Seattle for the Board of Governors meeting, Frank, and uh, the commissioner is poo-pooing the 2026 Winter Olympics. We're all very sad here. They're not Vancouver ready, Matt. They're not ready. Because and of so course, it begins. Yes. So is it posturing, or do you think this is real and the commissioner still wants to uh, go without the Olympics? Well, I think both things can be true at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. Like the arena can actually be a real issue. Mm -hmm. And the NHL, if you squint just hard enough, you can see them beginning to crack the door open as a reason for potentially not going. And then they can throw their arms up in the air and say, hey, hey, this wasn't us. It's because Milan couldn't get their stuff together, those damn Italian construction workers. Mm. And I can say that. Because I'm Italian and my family works in construction. <laughs> but um, that's that's kind of where they're at is you see them open that door. It's 2023. The Olympics are in 2026. And I get the timeline. Like, I think that's a real thing. But to begin to point that out now it and, and kind of ma massage that message, if you mm. will, over the course of his press conference. Do, do you know who's more concerned than Gary Bevan about this, guys? The IOC. Like, that's their business. Like, And when's the last time you saw an Olympic Games not ready? They're always super scared. Matt knows this. I'm always on Olympic scare alert. Blake is the biggest Olympic alarmist going. Because I mean, we games. see this with the World Cup, too. Like, yes. They, they're, they're, like, putting the finishing touches on the stadium as, like, the national anthems are being played. Every time. Like, it's like he's never been in this universe before. I, I just don't get it. I actually thought the insurance issues and the families and all of that, and of course it goes unsaid, but, you know, how red will be the carpet you roll out for our governors? I think those are actually the bigger issues. They've the actually got those sorted out for the most part. And that's the funny thing is they've, they've hammered out a lot of these issues that have typically been roadblocks. It's like, Okay, insurance, travel, accommodations for players, accommodations for their families. He's not concerned about that and acknowledge that he isn't concerned about that. So then, okay, cross that off the list of the playbook for reasons for the NHL to not be happy with the situation. Oh, okay, we can add in, hey, there is no arena. But then the next thing might be, which we haven't gotten now, and it's always less of a complaint when you play it in Europe as opposed to Asia, which is, oh, this is a huge disruption to our season. Yeah. Except that for part doesn't seem to be talked uh, about. It was like, well, we yeah. can't go to Beijing because it's a huge disruption to our season. And now it's like, oh, it's in Italy. That's great. Let's do it. Mm. It's all pretty rich for me. It's almost as though they want you to forget about the Olympics and imbue their tournament with some sort of meaning. Well, they do <laughs> want you to do that, but more Meaning than that, that hockey fans have been hesitant to give them uh, in the head-to-head -head comparison versus the Olympic tournament and gold medal. So you can 
say what you will about Gary Bettman and his business posture, the lockouts. You could, if you're a Canadian fan and you want to say that Gary Bettman doesn't like Canada, whatever charge you have against him, I think the biggest stain on his resume is the fact that we will have gone 12 years at the very least between international best on best play with some of the best talent the game has ever seen. Yes. Right. Yes. A generation that we haven't seen Absolutely. in years and, they, and we're not doing this with, with and that. And here's the thing for, I don't want to single him out by the way, because I think Don fear and the NHL players association owns a lot of that as well. That's a huge problem. Well, and the governors as well, like, you know, we would hear and particularly from American markets that, Oh, that, that really disrupts their ability to sell tickets uh, taking that break. I just, it's just all sounded like excuse making to me over the years. And you're absolutely right about the collection of talent right now and being able to see it best on best. And Connor McDavid's going to be 28. Yeah. 28. That's such and a he's crime. Never and, put on a team Canada best on best Jersey. And here's the thing. <laughs> That's a crime. That's criminal. It it's just unbelievable. And here's the thing, Frank. Based on the state of Canadian goaltending and where Team USA is at center, uh, y'all have a chance. Hughes, this the time Hughes around. family. I don't know if you guys yeah. have heard of them. Yeah, yeah you guys uh, have a chance this year. I mean, it's gonna be a good game. It's never been right a better time to be an American hockey fan. No. Yeah. And you don't. You, your country has never even seen it come together because they've had no chance to. There's mm -hmm. you, you can't get fans behind a, a mythical team that you can only talk about in roster projections. Why are they going to do this four team thing? Like, like that's not going to scratch the itch though. Like what's the, well, what, what are they... a little bit. It will to, oh, to oh, you oh. could potentially have the U S and Canada play each other three times. Yeah. Just do that though. In like, a week. Like, like that would be better. Give the euros all the week off and let's just go Canada and the U S that to me yeah. sounds interesting. Play best of five. Best of I would five play it at Canada U S seven game series. Yes. So, can you imagine? Yes. It would be huge. Yeah. And it, I, I get where they're at on that front though, because this is the appetizer to get back into, into international hockey. And I like it because Sweden and Finland made a stand and they said, in no uncertain terms, if Russia participates, we're out. Hmm. And so with that said, the league couldn't possibly then invite Russia to participate if they wanted to do a sort of mini World Cup, a, an entree back into this. They had to change it up. And this four-team tournament, as unsatisfying as it might be, you at least, especially if you play the Sweden-Finland games in one of those countries or potentially in both of those countries before then coming over to North America, you at least get that side of the world interested in this little tournament, whatever you call it. Right. Yeah. 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 That could, that could work. Uh, salary cap. Anybody disappointed profoundly by that, or is it still good enough for that? Uh, everybody feels okay about it. I don't, I don't think there's anything to feel one way or the other about it. This yeah. is, quite literally just the formula that's been on a piece of paper since June of 2020. If you've paid off the debt, that was $1 billion that ballooned to North of that from players to owners, then the cap goes up 5%. It's at 83.5 right now. 5% on top of that is 4.2 million, which gets you to 87.7. I mean, it's, it's as clean as that. There's nothing to be, happy or sad about 
I think the real question is, does the league and the players association come together and negotiate a larger increase than that? They should have done that last summer. I believe mathematically and the way the system works, that there was a way to increase the salary cap more than $1 million without touching the escrow withholding percentage that players had agreed to. But the league wanted something in return and that was it. They wanted the escrow cap to be moved up and players are like, we structured all of our contracts based on knowing that for this three-year period of time, escrow is capped at 6%. There's no chance we're giving that up, even if it means more jobs, even if it means more money in the system. We we negotiated that, and this is what this is our payoff for it. Might they negotiate for more this summer? They should. There's yeah. a way to do it. You got to get comfortable. You got to give something up. You got to be ready mm. to, to go back and forth because, as we know, the NHL doesn't give you anything for free. No, It's in their own best interest as a league to further have salaries suppressed like they are right now. Well, they sure have because even at 87-7, there's two basketball players in Milwaukee who make more than that combined. And the bottom line here, Gary, that... It, not to cut you off, but if the cap was actually relinked to revenue right now this season let alone next year and a projection this year would be 93 million. Mm. So bottom line, Gary took his mm. salary cap increase and went home. He's, nope. You're not bottom line is, and no one says this out loud. This is this current pandemic era. CBA is by far Gary Bettman's best work. It is <laughs> and, and I say this knowing that he negotiating down to a 50-50 split in 2012-13. I did the math. It's brought NHL owners in the last 10 years an additional 4.3 billion dollars in their pocket. Mm. And I'm telling you that that is second to how long a period of time that the NHL will have artificially suppressed player earnings in this period by keeping the salary cap as low as it is. Do you think Marty Walsh will uh, will be able to get uh, some expansion money the next time that happens? I mean, I don't want to say never because, I mean, you never know what happens, but I kind of feel like I have as good a chance getting pregnant. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and if Aaron... you look at me, you might say I already am. So what's the difference? <laughs> Aaron Portsline in Columbus last night tweets, Fantelli, if, uh, Adam Fantilli placed 10 minutes and 11 seconds. Kent Johnson, 8 minutes, 8 seconds. David Yerichek, 10 minutes, 25. A lost season at some point have to turn it over to the kids. Is it a shorter list to say who isn't available in Columbus than who is available? And at some point, does ownership or the general manager step in here and get this new coach playing the kids? I don't, I honestly, I, I don't even know what to say. That's how much of a mess it is there. And I see Yarmo Kekalainen and there he is at the board of governors meeting, you know, learning about AI and the economic state of the game. It kind of felt like, was it Nero that was playing the fiddle as Rome was burning? I mean, why, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Why is the third longest tenure GM in the league who has won one playoff series why is he immune to any sort of blowback or someone making a move? Is the ownership in Columbus that hands off that they're not watching this absolute 
car crash of a season. I can't understand it for the life of me what's happening there because you've drafted some really special players. You you mentioned Johnson and Fantilli and they've botched the development path of Sillinger and you look at Yurichek and the logjam of defensemen that he's had to play behind this season while they're playing Bokvist and Peak 23 and 26 minutes a night. I don't know about you guys, but I'm watching the New Jersey Devils. Simon Nemitz has played two games this season, and he supplanted Luke Hughes in ice time last night by five minutes. The number two overall pick. Like, if you've got special players, put them in a position to succeed. You cannot pretend, as Aaron Portsline was saying, that this season is still about this season for a team that had playoff hopes. Half the time, they don't even look like they care to be at the rink. And I'm not entirely sold Patrick Line even likes hockey watching him play this year. So you add all those things up and you say, well, who isn't available? My question would be, you've got your young players that you can park. And it's nice that they have someone like Denton Matechuk that's uh, back playing in junior and is not involved in this mess. But who would want most of these guys? They're not actually going to trade Kent Johnson, are they? Like I saw some talk about that chitter chat. That's just fan driven stuff. They're not actually thinking about that. Are they? If that were the case, I've already stated that Yarmo Kekalainen deserved his walking papers back in September before the season started. When you had such a critical hire for Mike Babcock and you botched that, and this was all about trying to make the playoffs this season. And now you've got your new coach in Pascal Vincent, who seems exasperated at every turn. If that's, it seems like fantasy talk, but if that were even a twinkle in someone's eye in the Columbus front office, that should be their last twinkle that they see in there. Yeah. <laughs> no more twinkles. You're out of twinkles. <laughs> uh, the goaltender market. Is Jake Allen now uh, available because of the extension for Montembeau in Montreal? And is it Seattle and Jersey that are most off or most uh, after goaltending right now? That's I think the plan is for Jake Allen to to find him a landing spot. I think the Canadians know that this three goalie setup can't continue any longer. Caden Primo has gotten his game together. Clearly, with the extension, they're believers in Montembeau. And if you look at the age, structure, and scheme of this team, Allen is one of those guys that's the outlier. But teams really like him because not only does he have tons of experience, more than 400 NHL games, he's also developed a reputation league-wide as being a great teammate and someone that whoever he's playing in tandem with loves having him as a partner. I can't say how important that is when you're thinking about bringing a goaltender into a mix mid-season, it's not always an easy thing to assimilate. And I think with Allen, it kind of becomes a non-starter and a given of, hey, this is what's going to happen when you bring him in. I wouldn't say the list is limited to just those two teams because he also felt like a fit for Edmonton. Although I still think even as rough as Jack Campbell's AHL outing was the other night with a couple of the goals he gave up, I think they have to give him one more chance to at least kind of rule that out, that he can't be an in-house solution before you have to go and pull the trigger on something else. I know Matt wants to ask you about defensemen too, but let's tie oh. it back to the Canucks here for a second here. Um, 
they go get Nikita Zadorov. And he's sort of like a younger, more mobile, and more physical Tyler Myers, whom they also have. Myers had a tough outing. Myers has tough outings. He, I think they have similar poor decision-making at times, the two big men. But they upgraded that big man spot. Do you think they have the appetite to hold on to Myers the entire season? And in, in your talks with the like, do they glow about him? Do you do you think that's one piece where they might be able to move that cap number out to improve, well, improve the club, but more specifically the right side of the defense? I, I don't get the sense that they glow about him. I also don't get the sense that they're as negative about his game as the fan base fan base might anticipate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a really delicate dance to be able to pull off what you're talking about. And personally, like, first off, I, I don't think they're a match to play with each other. Like that's not, that's not what I would do. No. Um, but more than that, um, I think it's really a depth and numbers issue. Like if you're to take Tyler Myers out of the mix, how much worse does that make again, not knowing what you get back in return, but how much worse does that make your, your defense core top to bottom? If you take out a guy that whatever you think he is a four or five, and then try and fit in someone or shoehorn in someone else, unless it's a clear upgrade, it kind of feels like you're moving the deck chairs around a little bit just to do it. And stylistically that might be a better fit. But when you look at the injuries that the Canucks have run into this season, and I made the point, you know, on last week's show when talking about the addition of Zadorov, is the fir- the first thing you want to avoid is having fringe NHLers in your lineup. Mm-hmm. The Julesons and the and the every game that you know without McWard and every game without those guys in the lineup that the Canucks can play is you're that much closer to a win. And I'm not knocking them saying they can't you know, grow or compete or whatever it might be. And sometimes you have to play those guys because that's life in the NHL. That's how it works. But to, to ship out Myers and to try and find a better fit right now, it, it would be incredibly hard to do. However, I will give you a preview on a column I'm writing for later this week, which is I think Patrick Alvin is the front runner for GM of the year through yep. the first quarter of the yep. year. And you look at I, how hard it was to make trades, Frank. And I'm trades so tired of hearing about it. Yep. When when you've got one guy that's made five out of the last eight trades in the league, and everyone else wants to complain about, oh, there's no cap space, no one wants to trade. Find ways to make something happen. Be aggressive. And I love, love, love that Alvin has gone out there and said. Uh, it, it, you may not see the complete picture right now, but I'll get there and you'll see it, you know, after they get the cap space from Beauvillier, they were obviously already working on Zadorov. It took a couple of days to pull it off, but then you start to see the picture come together more clearly. And they, for all the criticism that the Canucks fan base gave and some of it at times, rightfully so, what is the plan? Yep. The Canucks very clearly have one. And I'll tell you what it is. It's stacking up incremental 5% wins on top of each other on the margins to try and improve this team at a time when everyone else is sitting back on their hands saying, Oh man, it's so hard to make trades. That's exactly what hundred percent. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. Uh, Toronto was in on Zadorov. Is Chris Tanev going to wind up in his hometown as a Maple Leaf? 
He very well could. Um, I think that's the the that was the number one priority for the Leafs in talking trade with the Calgary Flames. Yes, they wanted to try and get both guys, but really what they were looking for was a reliable, steady piece in Tanev that they could count on. Zadorov was just a nice piece to add in as a different element. They view him as a third pair guy, I think, that could, you know, maybe just change things up a little bit. Um I still think there's a, a strong chance that they revisit it given this is going to go back to what I was just saying, given how few defensemen are actually available on the market that he kind of sticks out as an, as an easy fit for Toronto, who's still waiting for a little clarity on John Klingberg, but the goal for them, no matter what, whether it's in two separate deals or one is to try and get two defensemen to beef up their lineup instead of just one. Lastly, we saw what you tweeted about Broberg in Edmonton. Is that just a function of not having time to bleed? Got to be able to salvage this season. Got to be able to help goal prevention. And if it means a former top 10 pick, so be it. They're willing to trade him. Yeah, I think it's kind of devolved to a spot where the players had a crisis of confidence. You've got two different coaching staffs who clearly don't trust him. And no one has any rope right now to figure out if this can be salvaged. I think the real story on Philip Broberg is not that he's a failed top 10 pick. It's more so that he's just more or less an unknown still. He's untested in that you can't really expect someone to be good if they're healthy scratched for 60% of their games on the roster. How do you expect anyone to generate any confidence? And now with every game, every night mattering for the Oilers, this is there's no developmental league to just say, hey, you know what? We're going to play seven defensemen and we're going to try and wedge him in there for extra time. Or how about, hey, Brett Kulak, you sit out for the night so that Philip Broberg can somehow search in the muck and find his confidence. It's not going to happen. And the player has grown frustrated and clearly wants out and they're trying to facilitate it. Yeah. It's just we they, were they want something specific. We, we were looking. He's played 14 games this year. He played 62 games last year. He played 54 games the year before. I mean, just look at the totality of games that have been left on the table that this guy hasn't played as they try to develop him as a young defenseman. And as we so know, another it lesson, time. it's not a developmental league. He should have been developing yeah. somewhere else. Great stuff, Frank. Uh, catch some rest after that red eye from Seattle. We'll catch up next Friday. Have a good one, guys. Secure some price from Wall Center presentation. Applewood Auto Group hashtags are the best and worst of Twitter. And yesterday, Blake, we talked about well, the World Junior Selection Camp. Who's there? So today, let's look at who's not. And there are some interesting omissions and snubs here. Uh, a lot of people at Scott C. Wheeler of the Athletics. Some names who were. Invited to Hockey Canada summer meetings, but not the selection camp. Owen Pickering. Yeah. A Western Hockey League first-round defenseman to the Pittsburgh Penguins. Luca Cagnoni, Burnaby boy, San Jose Sharks draft pick of the Portland Winterhawks. He's on 32 points in 24 games this year. The two Prince George Cougars, Riley Height, Cone Zemer, and Height, 
viewed by some as the steal of the draft last year in the second round by Judd Brackett in the Minnesota Wild. Cole Barlow, a first-round forward from the Winnipeg Jets this past year. And there's a few other names there as well. Put it this way. If Team Canada or Team USA falls short of the gold medal this year, I think there's going to be some recriminations on the selection process because both of them have gone out enough on a limb to open themselves up for criticism. They uh, they sometimes just can't get out of their own way here. Like they just want to think that they figured something out more mm-hmm. than somebody, the guy next to them. And it's just sometimes you just overthink it. Riley Height leads the WHL in scoring. He has 53 points in 36 games. Now he's more a setup guy than he is a finisher. But that was an interesting name to see off the list. But you, you know what the problem is to like to not even bring like those kinds of players and again, to a camp to the camp to an evaluation camp. Like it's one thing for him not to make the team. Yeah. But to not even let him he, he, what it says to the players that are out there playing their seasons is it's a moving target. You know, we're, we're, we've got a we've got a criteria that you can't understand. So no matter what you do, you won't know if you've done enough. Like here's a guy who's leading his league, yeah. one of the top two leagues probably in junior hockey. I mean, some years it's the best. Yeah, yep. So he's like, what else are you asking that guy to yeah, do? Exactly. What more can he do? Hunter Bristevich uh, is the same okay. argument for the U.S. Here, here's what I... You're telling them, you're telling them <laughs> there's no way that you can know what you need to do. That, that's, and and that, that's a pretty that's a pretty weighty thing to put on these kids at this age. Here's what I will say. Prince George is 21-7 and seven leading the Western Conference of the dub, and their two best forwards were just told, you get to spend the Christmas season, the month of December basically, with your club and not with Hockey Canada. So watch them run up a record here. Right, yeah. And also, that's a whole lot of fuel for the postseason fire for a franchise that really hasn't had a ton of success over its history. And Eric Brewer's got a ton of, you know, credibility, you'd think, with that program. Dan Hamhuse, too. I'm surprised those two guys can't break off phone calls and go, uh, Oh, they may have. Hello. Uh, Shouldn't say that. Dan and Eric are like the two. They're two pretty quiet. Two pretty quiet, nice guys. Yes, they may not have. If I can, <laughs> but deep down, they're probably stewing. I, I'm not sure there's two guys less to lean on a guy than Dan yeah. Hughes and Eric. Brady. But imagine, imagine getting a letter from those two guys. You'd be like, whoa, we yeah. we must really have crossed the line. Oh my God, Dan Hughes is upset with me. What have I done? Yeah, uh, that's unbelievable. But you're, it's a really good point because everybody else gets watered down. Stars get stolen, and here's PG. They're gonna they're gonna go nuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want me to go? Let's pivot to baseball at Sea Time Sports. We talked about this yesterday. What was it all about? While Jerry Depoto can't or won't speak to why the team's ownership gave him a smaller budget than anticipated, the reasons stem from uncertainties surrounding the regional sports network. Um, we saw all the salary leaving the Mariners and what are, oh, they loading up for a big trade. They're not, they've been yeah. told they cannot spend money. And a lot of the reason comes from the lack of dollars coming from a regional sports deal. They shed about 30 million in these trades that they've made. Suarez, Gonzalez, they have about 20 million to spend. 
Budget's coming in about 140, a minimal increase to what was last year. One of the reasons Root Sports Northwest has been moved to the most expensive tier in their cable package uh, by Infinity, which is the biggest cable yep. provider. And so they're worried about fewer subscribers, fewer eyeballs on Mariners baseball. Never mind the markets that have had their regional sports network disappear entirely. That's it. So if that's what a team has to... Three teams. If that's what a team is is going through, and they've still got a deal, Mm -hmm. and it's just being impacted, imagine the teams that have lost their regional deals. It's got to be devastating for Mariners fans. And the clubhouse. Yeah. Like, there was great momentum there. You were building something. Now you sit there and look at it and go, Boy, you better hope those pitchers are even better this year. Going to be a lot of two-one games by the sounds of it. Sports is the last bastion of sitting through a commercial break. There mm-hmm. are very few other things that demand that you sit through a commercial break. And some people might record the games, but then you're not enjoying it with the rest of the world. Most people, mm-hmm. I myself included, hate watching recorded games. I like to experience it when I know the rest of the world is. Mm-hmm. Well. It allows you to look at your phone. Well, there's there's that, but it's usually playing in the background. It's usually sub you know subliminally trying to get at you. At Globe and Mail, Roger Goodell says football will p- become a global sport in a decade. He was in Las Vegas for an event to promote the Super Bowl. He joked that ten years ago he would not be in Las Vegas to promote a Super Bowl. He said a third international market is getting a game next year. It's likely going to be Spain or Brazil joining England and Germany. He said the tickets went so quickly in Germany, they could have sold four and a half million tickets. And yet, he says international expansion is not on the table right now. And of course, we've talked about it before, Blake. This is the one sport where you could put a team in Europe. I mean, you're traveling... Nine times a year, mm-hmm. right outside of playoffs and preseason. Yeah. He said the 2028 Olympics in Los Angeles and adding flag football is going to help the internationalization of the game uh, beyond the nation's shores. He also said holding Super Bowls in places like Las Vegas, where you have big international presence at all time, the tourist, yeah, would help as well. It's a little ambitious for me. I wonder if he's trying to align it with uh, his tenure as commissioner there. Yeah. I, I think, honestly... Especially he, if you're not going to expand to an international. Like, if you're going to move the Jacksonville Jaguars to London, or if you're going to expand and put teams in London and Mexico City, Toronto even, then I can get behind a 10-year timeline. But it, it depends on what he means, like what scale. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a team in London, sure. A team in London and Frankfurt, yeah, I can even imagine that. But like actual, like a full division of European teams to have pictures of people in South Africa playing football, like it's not happening. Like it's just not. I, I don't see that at all. The uh, equipment is not cheap. But it, it, it's, it's A, not in their culture. B, it's a violent game in, yes. in an era when people are trying to protect their heads more than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just think that there's saturation from in the, in the, like the 
the the frontiers that need the to be. Equipment is expensive, and you practice three times for every game. So, and, and you're competing against soccer, which is mm-hmm. in their blood at the athletic, all the way down to the sports name. Yes, at the athletic. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis criticized the college football playoff committee on Tuesday and said he's asking for a million dollars in the state's budget to let Florida State sue the committee over its decision to exclude the team from the playoff. How uh, very noble of him to ask for that million dollars. Yes. Uh, Of course, this is performative politics. Oh, do you think? Their Senator Rick Scott in Florida was already banging this drum earlier in the week. Um. (laughs) This is the same Rick Scott who declared the University of Central Florida the national champions in 2017 because they they completed an undefeated season in a lesser conference. Um, I'll say this, though, Blake. Don't find myself aligning with DeSantis and Scott very often, but... They have a case. I I hope they get their money. (laughs) (laughs) And I hope they sue. I would really love to read what the committee was saying behind the scenes on this here's the thing if 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 they get in mm-hmm. and one of who who's on the alabama and alabama texas and yeah so alabama, alabama. In, instead yeah. of florida State. so if alabama's out in florida like is there the same is there the same outcry like the alabama diehards so there, are there is an outcry because People will look at it and go, the Southeastern Conference is the best conference by a significant margin, and you've left out their champion who have the best win of the year on a neutral field against Georgia. Now, Alabama also lost to Texas. Yeah. They scraped by the University of South Florida early in the season, which was a dreadful game, and they needed a miracle on 4th and 31 to beat their rivals, Auburn, who were quite middling this year. Plus, the SEC had a losing record to the ACC this year in out-of-conference play. So there would have been a case to be made that this was the year to leave the SEC out. If you were looking at it objectively, you would have said they weren't that great out-of-conference. They didn't produce an undefeated champion. Their one-loss champion lost to another one-loss conference champion in a year where three conferences produced undefeated champions. Yeah. Sorry, SEC. Yeah. Perfect storm. Doesn't happen often. You're probably still the best top-to-bottom conference, but this year you don't get to participate because your champion didn't do enough vis-a-vis the rest of the country. The fact that they had a loss versus another team hmm. is already in there. To me, that there's evidence enough because yeah. Florida State did not have that yeah. loss. And if you had excluded Texas, you would have gotten a lot of hue and cry from the head-to-head crowd like, Texas beat Alabama. Right. Now, they beat them in September. Mm. Teams but, change but, a fair those, bit. but still, do but, those games matter or do they not matter? But, you know, to me, that have, that still would have been the lesser sin than leaving out an undefeated conference champion. I realize their quarterback's hurt. Ohio State's quarterback was hurt in 2014. Cardell Jones went into the game. He beat Alabama, the number one seed. He beat Oregon in the national championship. It has been proven in this format that a backup quarterback with a great defense, which Florida State has, can win the damn thing. It, it, here's the thing: the the, the the games in September should matter. I know they're they're given least to um, to consider form mm-hmm. in in terms of when, uh, who they dole out these invitations to. Bollocks! Yeah, 
how do you how do you create any sort of uh, urgency and mm-hmm. buzz around the game in September if you're saying this game legitimately we're telling you above board right. it doesn't mean as much as your wins and in next December. Year you're going to a 12 team playoff which will take the greatest regular season you have in sports and college football because every game is championship weighted yeah. and turn it into basically a a slog for seating, right? Yeah. Or are you going to get seated? Um, the other thing is, some will tell you that you know, with eighteen to 21 year old kids, for the most part, teams do change a fair bit between the early. Like Alabama looked dreadful in September; they look excellent now. Like I don't dispute the eye test there, that and the conclusion the committee came to. But you know, for me, the eye test is a very slippery slope when you have the secondary test, or to me, what should be the primary test. Most deserving. Yeah. Most deserving is an easier calculation than I test. At Nuclear Golf, rolling it back, the RNA and USGA announced their decision to roll back the golf ball starting in 2028 for professionals and 2030 for amateurs. I'm really surprised amateurs are on this list. Yeah. Like, how many guys do you know amateurs that hit the ball so far that existing golf courses that we play are too short for them from the blues or from the tips if they happen to have those those well, teeth the funny thing is is that you 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 lose that ability like i i it, i used to be considered a, a long hitter I've completely like I, i'm not a short hitter now but i like i'm just totally just a normal average joe hitter now like you lose that ability eventually, and this game is played by older people. Yes, like primarily. Like right. I, the only time I'm paired up with somebody, and go holy crap, they're nailing the ball. It's a twenty something, maybe yeah. early thirty something. Yeah. And guess what? In a few years, that's all going to stop. Their their club head speed is going to come down, and they're just going to be hitting the ball like everybody else. So it's for a, a, to me, it's for a small sliver of the market. Yeah. It, and and I'm very to. surprised they went there. Yeah, very surprised. For pros, absolutely. Sure. Because existing golf courses and existing great golf courses are now driver wedge for them Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. Yeah. Like, for example, um, our buddy Bruff. Yeah. Jason's a pretty big hitter. Mm -hmm. When he comes to Northlands with us, he plays a lot of iron off the tee. And he said to me in the past, it's a different test than when I go and play a longer golf course and I've got driver in hand. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Jason will also tell you that his driver in and of itself is his is biggest it, yes. test. <laughs> There's that too. That's hashtags. Sometimes it's by choice. That's hashtags for today. David Quadrelli is the editor-in-chief of Canucks Army. He's the host of Canucks Conversation. He's 40 minutes late for this scheduled interview, and he broke my chair. Other than that, our collaboration with the Nation Network is going just fine. How do you you defend yourself, Mr. Quadrelli? Okay, I didn't break the chair. All all I know is one day we came in, and we had been doing the show for about a week and a half, and somebody pointed out in our YouTube comment section that I was taller than Harmon, and Harmon wasn't very happy with that. So Harmon adjusted Matt's chair because Harmon sits in Matt's chair, I sit in Blake's chair, and the next day we're told that Matt thought that someone broke his chair or adjusted his chair, and I, 
apparently it was pinned on me and i was like this is unbelievable everybody blaming the short guy on raising the chair but no it was Harmon who wanted to be higher up in the chair uh so he's he's been the culprit there and i just want to say i think blake and i have had a great partnership on that side of the studio i don't think we've had one complaint about each other but we we do switch the chairs every day what's the problem what's the problem with the chair look at this chair it's now wobbly. It moves in directions it never moved before. <laughs> That's um, the chair Harmon. And I can't we... set it back to where it was in a rigid position. Um, well, it wasn't thing, me. Quadrelli. <laughs> Leaders take the blame when things go poorly and deflect the praise. The first thing you did was sewer harm. There is an alternative. Well, there is an alternative here to this whole thing. Matt is not the handiest. Um, I think there's a potential here and hear me out that the chair is not broken and that there's a setting that can fix it. So how, how come they haven't done that in the last couple of weeks, Blake, that would be my question because they heard of my displeasure with the chair the day after it happened. You're asking the two Gen Zers to fix the chair. Are you kidding me? Exactly. This, this is where our problem is. Gentlemen, we need a chair expert to come in. I actually thought about this. You can't set an alarm, much less fix a chair. Fair. Fair. (laughs) I actually thought about putting out a call on Twitter and just being like, does anybody actually know how an office chair works? Like what all the levers do? Because my chair right now isn't optimized for my posture and everything. So I'd like it to be. It's it's not, is it? Okay. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) You you needed optimized posture out oh of my yeah. you need your lumbar support wow. if the chair can do it why aren't you taking advantage of it the only answer for me is because i don't know how to make it work for me listeners should know quadrelli was in here about 48 hours when he proposed changing the name of the studio to blake and i it's true <laughs> yes yeah yeah he's we thought like a little expected. lot of gumption a lot uh-huh. of gumption why does the chair have 17 levers? Like it's a simple office chair. Yeah. How does it have that many? And fresh out of levers? the box, only about three of them work. Well, yes. and yeah. no wonder the company we got it from went bankrupt. Um, All right. You've got gumption. The Moving Canucks on. last night did not have any gumption. They had gumption. They came back down three in the third I, period. That's gumption. Yeah. And then they put all the gumption in the toilet and they pressed flush. Um, that was a weird game. Uh, David, how'd you see it? Well, where do you start, right? Like they they can't overcome a bad 40 minutes of play, right? And when I wrote instant reaction over at Canucks Army, the angle I took was that the players didn't like that the only tribute to Travis Green was a video video board little, they put him up on the video board. They wanted to play like they did when Travis Green was the coach. I was wondering where you're going. Very good. Very good. Good. Stay with me, guys. They stopped defending at five on five. (laughs) <laughs> he's not a particularly good teammate not handy but he's got jokes he's creative he's, he's creative got jokes. Yeah. continue mm-hmm. i i have to give some credit to kevin woodley because he was the first one that pointed this out to me where he was like yeah they're defending like they did with travis so i was thinking about it more and i'm like okay so they stopped defending at five on five five alarm chances against thatcher demko then they mount this valiant comeback on the back of their best players making you think that they might just be a great team and then in the end they completely have a lapse of focus to allow the devils to score that sixth goal and they basically come up short in the comeback effort it was the perfect tribute to travis green but that sixth goal i really want to focus on because mm. that was the point of ire for rick talk at post game when he said you could really blame all five guys on the ice and he just said i really don't know where anybody was going on that play and you go back and look at it 
And he's absolutely right. You you pick a guy, pick any guy on the ice and you think, okay, you're supposed to be there. Wait, why aren't you there? And all of a sudden you're just seeing this epic breakdown. And look, I'm sorry, but two uh, odd man rush chances in the first five minutes of the game to yes. Three, Brat. three, I would say three. Three. two from yeah. Brad. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Exactly. Exactly. They're, they're, I think I, I, I counted. It's funny. We have a little thing going on in our show where I, I have a problem with natural statric and how they list high danger scoring chances. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm coming up with my own system and we're kind of coming up with a name for it. I'm right now we're at high danger, high danger chances. That's the name to beat. Uh, but I counted eight against Thatcher Demko in that first period and natural statric only had four. I counted eight really high danger chances, like five alarm chances against Thatcher Demko in that first period. And you guys are right. There was a ton of odd man rushes. I just, I just noticed the two, two Jesper brought in the first five minutes of the game the first one Demko turns aside the second one he's not as lucky on and it's just that can't happen at the NHL like that can't happen at the NHL level you cannot defend that way and look like I'm sorry but Jack Hughes waiting out Tyler Myers to make a mistake that kid should not be able to know that that's going to happen and he perfectly telegraphed that Myers was going to make a mistake and he capitalizes on it sending the puck into the middle of the ice for Eric Hall and just from there, I just felt like they were they were playing catch up and they ultimately came up short. You're absolutely right. You're not the only one who's got a problem with uh, natural stat trick and the tabulation of high danger chances. And uh, you've now admitted to plagiarizing Kevin Woodley <laughs> on top of the other sins. <laughs> he was amused. This. Not plagiarizing. He was, he was, Kevin was amused. Can I ask you this? Is Hughes Bowl going to be fun? going forward or did the Canucks actually have to start winning some of these games against Jack and the devils for it to be as fun as it could be? Well, it's six and one right now, right? Like the devils are the devils are six and one in the use bowl. And that was the first time with Luke. So maybe you give it a clean slate for Quinn, but even then you still have a losing record after last night. Look, is it fun? Yeah, like last night, last night's game was fun. Uh, speaking of Woodley, we were joking on the walk down. We were like, maybe we should ask all the players if they had a lot of fun in that game because it was a fun one to watch. And obviously we didn't ask that, but it was a fun game. Like it was a fun game. And think about it. If you're the NHL, that's what you want, right? Like you want a fun game, a high scoring affair like that. You A high flying game with a ton of rush chances. Maybe not as many as the Canucks gave up, but a ton of rush mistakes chances. Are mistakes yeah. are fun. Mistakes are fun. That's why we like the world yeah. juniors. Kids I mean, making mistakes, and, and, right? You know, honestly, the, the game sort of brought me back a little bit to the Boudreaux era of, of high flying. And, and frankly, I think the through line, the thread line here, David, through all these struggles against New Jersey, because it goes back even further than that, they play a high tempo game. We know in years past, the Vancouver Canucks have not had great foot speed. In fact, it's probably still not where it needs to be. And so they get you into these sorts of games. And the Canucks have not had the discipline. And I think that's why Tockett was as angry as he was post-game. But they have not had the discipline, certainly under Boudreaux and Green, to avoid playing into the devil's hands. And so you get these sorts of games. Quasi, they've got... uh... You know, better depth. They've got National Hockey League defensemen playing most of the positions. Now when Carson Soucy comes back, they'll have six National Hockey League defensemen through and through. But four of those National Hockey League defensemen will be um, thoroughly vetted $3 million kind of defensemen in the National Hockey League, which is to say that nobody really is reputationally ready to be a 3-4 defense pair um, on a decent team. 
Um, is that going to rear its head here as we uh, see if the Canucks can bounce back and actually show structure over 82 games? Like anybody can show structure for, you know, a dozen, maybe even 20 games. But is this team with the defensemen that they have, are they going to be able to show defensive structure over 82? I want to say yes, because obviously a big part of it has to do with the forwards. But in terms of just the defense pairings that we're talking about here, we saw the structure start to really break down when Quinn Hughes and Philip Ronick were playing 30 minutes a night. And, you know, to their credit, the Calgary game, like we saw them play 23 minutes each or something around that margin, a lot less than they had been playing until Nikita Zadorov had been acquired. In that game, you also saw Ian Cole's ice time come down. And as a result, Ian Cole had one of his best games as the Canucks, where the Canucks outchanced the Flames 7-2 to with him on the ice. Like, that that's a result of him playing less. Like you're looking at a 34 year old who's playing the highest minutes of his career. So yes, sure. He's not, you know, Ian Cole's not a bonafide uh, number three defenseman, but he was, he was having to play like one for this team. So the healthier you get, even if these guys aren't world beaters that are coming back, the fact that they're NHL defensemen is just a, it's a massive step up from where the Canucks have been in recent years. And it's definitely a step up from where they are now. So I, I'm going to say yes, that the, the defensive structure is going to improve the more NHL guys you add back in the lineup. Look, I think the most, I won't say most concerning. I think that sounds a bit reactionary, but one thing I'm concerned about is Philip Peronik's ability to carry his own pairing um, after what we saw last night. And if you're the Canucks and you're going into negotiations with this guy, the conversation we've all been having is, okay, well, he's putting up a lot of points. He's playing really well, but he's also playing with Quinn Hughes. You don't want to pay Quinn Hughes' partner eight-plus million. Can this guy hold it on his own pairing? And once Ethan Bear is healthy, assuming the Canucks sign him, of course, we're likely going to see Quinn Hughes and Ethan, Baring, Ethan Bear as a pair, which means Philip Ronick is going to have his own pairing. And look, last night, I, I, I didn't love Philip Ronick's game. I thought he was late getting to his spot a couple times. So, you know, as much as we're talking about the bottom of the lineup, guys, it's those guys too. Like, like not so much Quinn Hughes, obviously, but mm -hmm. Philip Ronick, like Philip Ronick has to play like an actual number two defenseman. He needs to be able to hold his own pairing. That's what the Canucks thought they were getting when they traded for him. And look, it's one game. Like I, I I'm sure he'll turn things around but he has to do it first. And I, I'm not so so worried about the bottom of the lineup like when Carson Soucy comes back. I'm not worried about that so much. I think that's going to have a positive effect on the guys at the top of the lineup. But the guys at the top of the lineup still need to get it done. Last question from me before I go back to seeing if I can figure this chair out. Um, Kuzmenko, do you think it's going to work with Tockett? And our poll question today, they have dealt him at the deadline last year. What says you? Well, I said yes uh, at the deadline last year. Like, Faber and I were both very hard on the idea of them trading him. They needed to trade Kuzmenko. You could get a first-round pick. We were talking about all this. And I admitted that I was probably wrong about that later in the season when his goal total approached 40. Um Look, did I expect him to be this bad this season? No, but he's noticeable, guys. Like, he's noticeable for all the wrong reasons. And uh, look, should they have traded him at the deadline? Maybe. Like, you had your head coach at that point, right? And with all this organizational alignment, to their credit, like, we, I don't think we've seen the Canucks be this aligned from top to bottom in a while. 
for all that talk, did Rick Tockett think that he was going to like Andre Kuzmenko at some point? There were warning signs last year, right? Like it wasn't like Kuzmenko um, went to Bali and forgot how to play defensively. No, this is who he is. Like this is who he is. The problem now is that the goals aren't coming. And this is the conversation that every head coach, we've heard Bruce Boudreaux talk about it uh, in the context of Nils Hoaglander. Every head coach talks about this, that, hey, if you're not going to be a 40-goal guy, you better not be hurting the team when you're out there. And right now, Andre Kuzmenko is hurting the team every time he's out there. Just think about the fact that the answer, and, you know, Ilya Mikheyev too, we can talk about him another time, I suppose. But think about that the answer on Elias Pettersson's line has been Sam Lafferty and Dakota Joshua. Two bottom six players playing on Elias Patterson's wing have been the answer. And those guys have looked, and they looked last night, a lot better than Kuzmenko and Mikheyev have at any point this season. That's a fantastic point, David. That's a fantastic point. In fact, none of us would have expected it. You have redeemed all of your misgivings earlier in the interview and in the studio. All's forgiven. Clean slate. All Clean. is forgiven. Clean he is yeah. magnificent as an interviewee. Thank you for this, buddy. Uh, look forward to getting this chair back in working order. Have a great show with Harm today. Give him my best. We'll catch up soon. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Take it. Quads. Here's some price from All Center presentation, Applewood Auto Group. You can text us 778-402-9680. It's the Great Clips text message inbox. Great Clips. It's going to be great. Dramatic pause. Mm -hmm. So we should get our Otani answer by the weekend. Did you see the little... uh, uh, Public censure of... Dave Roberts, Dodgers manager by his boss, GM Brandon Gomes. Is that who texted him when you looked down at the phone? And he was like scowling at his phone? like he was it, just... it may well be, but, you know, Roberts was speaking specifically about their courtship of Otani. Yeah. And Brandon Gomes, their GM, tells Bob, uh, Bob Nightingale he was surprised that Roberts opened up to the media about their meeting with Otani. The there were already reports out there that Otani did not want his meetings made public. Ross Atkins twisted himself into knots with non-answers to the "Where were you Monday?" question because he had an in-person media availability that was rescheduled. Yeah, it was. It uh, but, 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 I, you have to understand that. Yeah, exactly. Um, that Ivy League smart mouth trying to, I mean, it's pretty clear he went to Dunedin to meet with Otani in the group. Tom Vertucci says it's down to the Dodgers and Blue Jays here. Uh, others have said San Francisco and the Angels remain in this. There have been a fair number of leaks out of Camp Blue Jay prior to o- Atkins and the Hamana Hamana Hamana. You know, it, it's funny, like, both of these storylines are so huge that they are comp- the LeBron decision storyline and the Shohei. Both of them, both of them were huge, dominated headlines for weeks. Yep. And yet, it's so funny. You know, ultimately, the final chapter 
LeBron does a TV show, quintessentially American. Lights, camera, action. Like, make it huge. We're going to make money off this. We're going to make a big deal. And Shohei Otani is, if any one of you and to t- a, talks about this. To a lesser scale, the Kawhi watch when the Raptors were trying to resign him and CP24 was sending helicopters following his, uh, what was it? private SUV from to and from Pierce. Well, that's the thing is that how is Shohei Otani traveling? Because people are usually pretty good about those. Well, well, someone found that like the private jet going from Clearwater to Anaheim and then Ross Atkins is going from Nashville to Clearwater. So easy to trace now for those that know how to do it. It's it's unbelievable. So we'll see. It sounds like it's a few days though for Shohei, um, although may not be that long for Juan Soto. You know, it's funny because I think LeBron is the comparable here. Yeah, in terms of players getting to free agency, I mean, Peyton Manning was a free agent after being released by the Colts. Reggie White, a great free agent in the NFL once upon a time, but but not the unequivocal best player in the sport. That's it. No, that's it. The unequivocal best player in the sport. Uh, meanwhile, how about this? So we sort of knew that Orlando Steinauer, Seattle's Orlando Steinauer. Played football at Western Washington. They no longer play football. Was thinking of hanging up the big whistle in Hamilton and just moving upstairs. Well, he did that, and they hired Scott Milanovic as head coach, which everyone suspected. They also hired former Lions general manager Ed Hervey as their new GM. You may remember it was an ignominious ending to Hervey's tenure here in B.C., There was that whole separate agreement with Mike Riley, which didn't get registered because the season wasn't played in 2020, and Riley grieved it. Lausher and Braley were not aware of it. Um, Mr. Braley pastoring that time as well. Um, Hired Devon Claybrooks here. That was an unmitigated disaster. Decent first year. They went 9-9, but then... 5-13 5-13 and 13 the next year, released Solly Elamimian, said, you know, thought Solly was washed. Solly went on to have a hell of a year in Saskatchewan. I, I was a little surprised to see uh, Ed get another chance, although by the same token, it's been almost four years. And Some weird days in Lions history. Oh, very weird. Yeah. Yeah, they uh, they very weird. they wandered through the woods there for yeah, a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they did. All right, errors and omissions from yesterday's program. I have one on Blake. Mm. Said World Junior Camp about to break. It's about to open. It breaks at the end. Opens mm. at the beginning. Break open. <laughs> <laughs> if only Riley Height and others were hoping it broke open for them. Grady, you said you had one. Yeah, one on, one on myself. I spelt the word deserves wrong in our show tweet yesterday. Oh. Where was Grammarly on that one? And then Tyler, oh, Tyler, oh, Tyler in the inbox. He says, E&O on Dan Milstein. The regular season is not the preseason. You can say what you want about McKayev just finishing his version of the preseason, but that is on McKayev and the Canucks' failures to pull the plug in December 2022 when the season was out of hand. Omission on all the media for not challenging Milstein and the Canucks brass for allowing this twisted logic 
to be used. Shame on you, Matsikaris. Shame on you, Blake Price. We've, uh. we've, we've editorialized on this a zillion times on how they should have... You, we're gonna have to give an E and O I mean, to the submitter. It's not wrong though. I probably there could have been a follow up question to Milstein going, "Why the hell did it happen like that to begin with?" Then Dan, if you call in this preseason, well, so bizarre. Anyway, but, the, but the, the, the the whole question. And was in fact, there. they've actually dodged that bullet compared to what it could have been. Like if McKayev comes out here and shits the bed through 50, 25 games ago, why the hell did they do? He's he's been pretty good. Yeah, he's been totally fine. He was, as we said, not a big part of last night. But um, no, he had the first shot of the game, I believe, and then nothing. And then yeah. sweet FA. Mm-hmm. Now, Tyler, the show, like Blake said, it's been brought up many times, but also in the market, fans, media members, sure, maybe not directly to Milstein, but it's definitely been. But the question, about. the question too, is just about mm-hmm. how McKay is currently playing. Yes. And yeah. we're looking through that lens. Not yeah, and, and, and on because Saturday, it's been pretty good, it's why that hasn't been a bigger on story. On Saturday, he was Probably flying. why we didn't follow up the, with the question, which we could have. Yeah. Saturday, I'll, I'll take that one. Saturday, he was moving his feet. He was starting mm-hmm. to see. Yep. Well, <clears throat> Dan called him probably the fastest skater in the league. I'm not sure it's a little he rich, is, but yeah. he's definitely up there I mean, in terms of straightaway speed. Now, with the puck and... You know, agility and lateral movement and all that. Yeah, probably, probably the league not. kept track of these sorts of things. Oh, they do. Yeah. Poll question results from Tuesday on the two-year anniversary of his departure. Does Jim Bannon get enough credit for assembling the core of Pedersen, Hughes, Demko, Miller, and Besser? Yes or no? What won the poll? 2,100 votes on this, people said. They said, yes, he gets enough credit. Correct. Percentage? 64. 55. We had many quibble with the question. I couldn't find it this morning, but one one commenter said, I refuse to answer the question <laughs> because if I vote yes, yeah, it I implies he deserves credit. And if I vote no, it implies he deserves even more credit. But uh, I don't believe he deserves credit to begin with. They're missing they're missing the point. If you if you give him no credit and mm-hmm. you think he deserves no credit, then he gets enough credit. It matches. Jeff deserves no credit whatsoever. His job was to build a successful team, what he, which he failed miserably at. Nitpicking small victories is what losers do. It's success or failure. And he failed. Dan, the only thing Jim Benning has ever underestimated on, was ever an underestimated on, or not been given enough credit for, is his ineptitude. <laughs> He did a couple good things and 10 million mind-boggling hair-pulling things. Yeah, that was Robert Park. Said, I refuse to vote. Right, good good job, Robert. Captain Flannel. It's pretty telling that it's been two years and he hasn't worked in hockey since. Other notorious field GMs like Chirelli and Talon, amongst others, have gotten cushy gigs post-firing, and yet Benning hasn't. David, he gets adequate amount of credit and criticism. And then there was Malcolm. I reject this question entirely. <laughs> I get it. I get yeah. it. Yeah. Betway bets of the day. Incidentally, uh, McKeever is not even in the top 10 for skating speed this year. He's at 36.42 kilometers per hour. And the leader is Kupari, Rasmus Kupari, over mm. 38. You know, the Steelers with Mitchell Trubisky under center. This sounds like a game that the New England Patriots might win. Do you think New England is going to finish the year with two wins? Yes. 
I think they probably get another one, and this one might be it. I'm getting plus 310 in this defensive battle where one turnover could be the difference, right? This could be a 10-7 game because Trubisky throws a pick six. Give me the hoodie at plus 310 on your Betway bet of the day. I'm going total passing yards on the under for Bailey Zappi. <clears throat> Bailey Zappi. Mm-hmm. Under. 155 and a half for it paying out at 187. Must be 19 plus to play. Please play responsibly. Thanks for listening, everybody. A reminder to follow, subscribe to us, Rinkwide, Canucks Conversation, that Quadrelli fellow. He was on the show today. He was mm-hmm. late, too. Wherever you get your podcasts, follow on social, Twitter, Insta, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. And of course, support the community sponsors you hear us talking about. Keep it local.